So yeah, we've been doing this summer in the Psalms. And how many have been enjoying this? This has been kind of interesting, kind of a different take on things. But. And one of the things that I think is important for us to understand about the Bible, especially the Gospels and the Old Testament, is that there's a very strong relationship between them. Okay? We have a tendency to read the Gospels from our own anachronisms, from our own perspective. We read them like we're 21st century Americans. But the Gospels were written by people who were looking at the world through a filter formed by the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you really want to be able to understand who Jesus is and what the Gospels think Jesus is doing, we've got to read the Old Testament. That's part of the reason why we're in the Psalms. So today we're going to talk about one of the foundational problems in our world inside our own selves, right? The illusion of self-rule. We think we can always make our own decisions, that there aren't going to be any real problems. We can rationalize any decision we decide we want to make, right? I mean, think about, think about how often facts really don't matter to you. Half the time, we'll just take the facts and massage them so that they fit a specific thing we want to do. Or we'll ignore them altogether, right? If we, can't, if we find a fact that we can't massage, well, we'll just ignore it. It's okay. That one doesn't matter. You know, we do this when people uh, write things. People do this with the Bible. I, I've been reading a lot of... Uh, PhD work on the Bible lately, and the thing that strikes me is how often when a guy stumbles across, stumbles over a verse in the Bible that he doesn't think, that he doesn't like, he will then say, oh, well, this was probably added later. That's like the scholar thing, right? Like, oh, well, this was added later. Is there any evidence? No, it's just what I think because it doesn't fit my theory about what this says. So it must not be real. We do this a lot. No one is immune to this. World leaders are not immune to this. Janitors are not immune to this. Scholars are not immune to this. Okay? We have a tendency to have a fixed view in our mind of what something is supposed to say or what something is supposed to sound like. And then we go from there. So we live in this delusion that we call, I can make my own decisions and nothing bad will happen. We've been doing this since the garden. We've been doing this since the garden. Eve's problem was that she wanted to be her own God. That was her problem. She didn't want to be who she was. She wanted to be her own God. So she reached out for that on her own. And there it was. We've been trying to contend with God ever since the garden. The nations are full of schemers. Every nation, even ours, Sometimes, especially ours. But everywhere. The Russians, Cambodia, East Jamangu. Name name a nation, East Jamangu. It's a new country I've just made up. The leaders of that nation are schemers, I promise you. It's who we are. We can't help it. We're made in the image of God. We always want to make order out of chaos. But because we're twisted by our sinfulness, that order tends to be about us 
and about how great we are and about our vision for the world and we throw out God's vision for the world. So today we're going to look at Psalm 2 to see how God actually uses this delusion of self-rule to do what he wants anyway because he's God and he's much smarter and bigger and stronger than we are. Now, it's interesting in Psalm 2, right at the beginning, we read about the nations and how they want to separate themselves from God's rule, right? They think they can do it themselves. You know, now this Psalm 2 was written a good... Joe, Joe Miller, you were around for that, right? Good two, three thousand years ago? It was just, it was just you. Joe, Joe Miller helped David uh, edit this Psalm. I've been waiting for that after all those short jokes. <clears throat> I forgot about that verse that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Uh, just threw it away. Yeah, I'm a, I massaged it. I massaged that verse. We just forgot about it. It's a later edition. God doesn't really mean that. So Psalm 2, right? Joe and David writing Psalm 2. 3,000 years, year, uh, okay, closer to 1,600 years ago. Same problem, right? Fast forward to the 18th century, the French and American revolutions. And a lot of those are founded in, well, we want God to be the guy that gets us safely to heaven, but we don't want him to help us run things. The French Revolution in particular was especially a revolution against the Catholic Church. Now, they had some good reasons for that, but... In many ways, that's what it was about. There's been this narrative we've found, especially in our time, this clumsy kind of historically illiterate narrative that back in a long time ago, in the Dark Ages, just a few hundred years ago, we were all morons because we believed in God and we let God help us decide how to do things. And so all those morons who, you know, make up the foundation of modern science, all those morons who, they, you know, it was bad for us. You know, we had lots of wars, which isn't entirely true, but we'll come to that. And we had lots of people who didn't think for themselves, which is only half true. And, you know, it just was time for mankind to step out and mature and become responsible and rule the world for himself, right? So then what we did is we, you know, we crafted these things. The French Revolution comes along. The American Revolution comes along. And we have these different revolutions that spout these republics start, you know, showing up around the West. And we do things like (sighs) colonize and enslave the African nations, because that's really civilized and think, you know, something that we should do. And then, you know, we're constantly fighting each other over resources still. You know, the exact same thing that they were doing a few hundred years ago when they were all morons. You know, but taking God out of the picture made us better. Huh. All right. So far, no difference. See, this is narrative that science, reason, and the ballot box will somehow save the world. But if you look at the history of the 20th century, more people died violent, horrible deaths at the hands of war 
or their own governments than in the history of the world. And the 20th century, if anything else, if nothing else, was certainly the age of secular states that supposedly were not governed by religion. Modern secular memory is very selective. We're really good at remembering the Crusades from the 11th and 12th century and how evil those were. And look, a lot of what happened there was terrible. Now, we don't remember a lot of the details. We just think that, well, you know, one day those uh, evil Christian people woke up and decided, you know, we don't like all those Muslims over there, so we're just going to go kill them all. Now, that's not really what happened. But it's what we think. It's what we've been taught to think. So we remember that and how out of hand all of that got and how bad it was. But we forget what Joseph Stalin did to his own people just 70 years ago. Atheist. We forget that Stalin hunted down religious people. Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, didn't matter. If you're religious, he hunted you down, stuck you in a prison or shot you. Oh yeah, and he bulldozed your churches. Or blew them up. Literally blew them up. That's just 60 or 70 years ago. Where's the secular memory there? How about Mao Zedong in the 1950s and the rise of the People's Republic of China? Lots of people died under him. Lots of people died under him. But we're good at remembering the Spanish Inquisition, which was a terrible thing. Don't get me wrong, it was terrible. But our memory is very selective, remember? We have a tendency to ignore certain facts, massage others, and create a narrative. We can't just embrace all the facts and understand ourselves in the light of those things. So if the secular, the separation of ourselves from God has been so great, then why did a hundred million people die in the 20th century who didn't have to? Our memories are selective because our self-imposed delusion cannot survive reality. So we ignore facts. We massage truths. We pretend that we don't need God to help us figure out what's right and wrong. And then we murder 20 million of our own people. then we conspire with the English to overthrow a a democratically elected ruler, replace him with a dictator who's loyal to us, and then we can't figure out why those people hate us 20 years later when they get rid of him. We've done that. That's us. That's on the United States. I'm not here to talk about how terrible everything is and how the United States is the source of all evil in the world. But we also are kidding ourselves if we think that everything that our country does or that other countries do is the greatest thing ever. We have to break free from this idolatry of the state. These complaints about corruption that we hear from Washington, right? 
Washington's got like a 10% approval rating or something ridiculous. So Congress is, it's ridiculous, whatever it is. It's so low, they all should be fired. If I had a 10% approval rating at work, I'd have been fired a year ago. They, they would have gone back in time and fired me. Like, it's just terrible. You know, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, what are, what are Isaiah's complaints about Israel's government? Exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. You trample the widow and orphan. The poor people don't get a fair hearing. The rich own the government. Sound familiar? 2,700 years ago. But, you know, we can run things ourselves. So why was the 20th century so full of violence? Why was it so full of terror? It's because we don't know any other way to rule the world than through threats of violence. We don't know any other way to do what we need to do aside from threatening, well, if you don't do what we want, we're just going to kill you. So the nations align, as the psalmist says. They rattle their sabers at God. Shake their fist. We can do it ourselves. And what does God do? He laughs. He laughs. You guys are silly. Now why does God laugh? Is he uncaring? I think it's just because his sense of humor is a lot like mine. Right? Everyone thinks God's sense of humor is like theirs, so I'm just going to take that one. Like, oh, this is cute. This, what, this is like your five-year-old when they think that they're smarter than you. Right? Or your 15-year-old when they think they're smarter than you. Look, it's amazing how, magic, how my father magically became a smarter man from the time I was 12 you know, and then I hit my late 20s and I was like, wow, not everything he said was wrong. <laughs> what changed? <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. It's just that ridiculous, right? Like, oh, this is hilarious. You guys say, okay, go ahead. Have a good time with that. And then God says, but I'm going to do you one better. He says, I've set my king in Jerusalem on the holy hill. That's his answer. Now, What is he talking about? This is way before Jesus. Way before. And yet, David's holding to a promise that God made to him early in his life. That God would set up the house of David and he would rule the earth from it. Now, how does God plan to do this? Well, David has no idea. And yet, God takes the violence that humans impose in order to have the world run their way. And he turns it on itself and uses it to crown himself as king of the world. Let's go to Isaiah 52. Now I'm going to use this Bible because I think it's the same as what's up there. Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. 
and he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in the dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, and that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servants... Not quite finished there. We'll just finish in here. See that? Technology is wonderful until it doesn't work right. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. There are plenty others like this in the Old Testament, but this is the most explicit or one of the most explicit. God takes the violence that we use to punish people who don't do what we want and he turns it on himself, he turns it on itself and he produces the Messiah, the Lamb of God. He takes the form of man and he embraces death. This is why God laughs. The scriptures are full of these promises of one who suffers, comes through on the other side, and is crowned king. All through the Old Testament. It's a very powerful theme. There are other promises like this in Zechariah chapter 12. I'm not going to take you through every single one because we'll, be, we'll literally be here all day. You guys will be asleep long after I'm done. Long before I'm done. Verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning for Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. 
Jump to 13.1. On that day a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. And then verses 7 through 9 of chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn against the lambs. Two-thirds of the people in the land will be cut off and die, says the Lord, but one-third will be left. I will bring that group through the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. These are promises. That God is going to fix our problem. Because science, reason, and the ballot box can't. I mean, really, what is the ballot box depends on people. Well, we watch the election cycles every four years. We know how easy it is to fool people. By the hundreds of thousands, by the millions. By the millions. Think about that. In Zechariah, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And out of that person, out of Jerusalem on that day, fountains of living water will flow to the nations. It's a promise. Jesus is channeling verses like this and many others when he predicts his own death. He's thinking of these things. Do you ever... uh, Do you ever read in 1 Corinthians where Paul says Jesus died according to the scriptures? Anyone ever? When you get a minute, write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter you should read it. It's one long argument about the resurrection. But in there, Paul talks about how Jesus died according to the scriptures. Now it's important to remember, the gospels weren't written then. The scriptures he means are not the gospels, they're the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, toward the, end of the, toward the end of the Gospel of Luke, I want to say it's chapter 24, Jesus is walking down a road with two disciples who are really confused about what's happening. And Jesus said, it's the scriptures that have said I needed to do everything that I did. Well, there's no Gospels. It's the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't say a word about how he has to go to Jerusalem to die until after the disciples say, you're the Messiah. It's linked. In each gospel, you can go any of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially. If you go in there, find the place where Peter says, you're the Messiah. Right after that, Jesus starts talking about going to Jerusalem to die. Right after that, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, a, that's not an accident. It's not an accident. Then there's John 12, 27 through 33. Jump with me there. You see, God's vision of how this stuff is going to work, how he's going to turn everyone's plans upside down, it looks different than ours. You know, we're thinking, you know, tanks or whatever heaven's version of tanks are, and have, you know, angels flying around and doing their thing. But instead, the saving of the world is a young prophet from 
Nazareth, riding on a donkey in tears as he weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The salvation of the world is a young Jewish prophet who embodies the God of Israel and he dies at the hands of his own people so that he could conquer the death they've sentenced him to. Chapter 12. Verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. This is Jesus talking. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already bought glory to my name, and I will do it again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken. Then Jesus told them, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now listen carefully. The time for judging this world has come. Not, you know, whenever. Now. He's talking about right now. The time for judging of this world has come. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. You know that song, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. And right then it goes on to sing that verse. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw men to myself. Well, it's really taking it out of context because Jesus is talking about being killed. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am crucified... I will draw all men to myself. With my crucifixion and my, and my resurrection, the ruler of this world will be cast out. This world will be judged. And the judgment is, I showed you who I am and you killed me anyway. But I will forgive you and still make everything new. Yeah. The judgment is, we are guilty. We think that with our guns and our bombs, we think that with our violence we inflict on the world, that we can somehow just force everything to do what we want. And it never works out that way. Look at what's happening in the Middle East. You know they've been doing that for a thousand years? You think that violence is going to stop because we dropped some bombs on them? It's not going to happen. We think that we can impose our will on the world. Jesus says, die to yourself. Jesus died to himself. Jesus repurposed death by embracing it. Notice the language. Now the judgment of this world. I'm thinking now of Psalm 2 again. What, you think you're in charge? No, you're not. You think you've got this? No, you don't. You know, the modern nations aren't that different from the ancient ones. The technology is there, right? The world is smaller. But the Roman world was... Super about pleasure. 
right? If you go read 1 Corinthians, you read Paul's writings to the Corinthians, you can tell right away what their problem is. They've got prostitution everywhere. They're killing each other over everything. The Pax Romana was, don't disturb the peace or we will kill you. That was the Pax Romana. It was imposed by violence. So Jesus turns that Roman cross into a throne when he rose from the dead. God goes on in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, when I was going through this, it struck me. Do you guys... uh, If we go into Matthew and Luke, we can read about the temptation of Jesus, right, in the desert. And what is one of the things that Satan says to Jesus? I will give you the nations if you bow down and worship me. What did he say to Adam and Eve? I will give you godhood if you trust me and ignore what God says. Wow, that argument hasn't changed hardly at all, has it? Ah. And of course, Jesus succeeded where we failed. Where we failed. Jesus succeeded. It strikes me that you'll notice Jesus, he came to bring the kingdom of God, but he didn't do it by imposing it with violence. Instead, the invasion of the kingdom of God was the blind will see, the deaf will hear to preach good news to the captives, to give liberty to those who are oppressed, to usher in the kingdom of God with my own death, burial, and resurrection. It was not to impose it with violence. There's plenty of that. Just a couple hundred years before Jesus, you had these guys called the Maccabees, and they led a revolt against the Greeks who were trying to get them all to eat pork and worship, you know, some weirdo in the temple instead of God. And uh, he was a weirdo. He, he called himself Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, like the vision of God. He was a weirdo. So, he, uh, so that didn't work out so well. The, Mac- the Maccabees won that, but then they kind of became almost exactly like the people they conquered. By the way, if you're not familiar with that story, ask, ask any Jew about Hanukkah. That's what that story is about. Jesus opted not to impose bloodshed, but took the bloodshed upon himself. There's another man who did this. His name was David. He wrote the second Psalm. And do you remember how he had two opportunities to kill Saul and take the kingdom for himself, and he refused? I think that this is the reason why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because David refused to take by violence and instead waited until God gave him what he promised on his own. It was much later than David wanted. The easier path would have been just to kill Saul. But he waited. Jesus reflects this. The kingship is handed to him after he endures suffering. After he endures the cross. Then he is king. He doesn't reach for it himself. This is the embodiment of Israel's God. And yet he feels that he has to earn his kingship 
by walking in solidarity with us. Go to Matthew 28. No, forget I said that. Go to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is Paul talking. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can keep going. We can go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. I'm starting to like Revelation more and more now that I uh, at least maybe 5% understand it. It's a tenuous 5%. Revelation 5.12 And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why is the Lamb worthy? Because He was willing to be killed by His own people. He refused to take by violence what was rightfully His. Instead, He earned it. The cross is the fulcrum of history. It is the place on which the human history turns. We think the modern West is. We treat modern Western democracies as though they are the fulcrum of history. Well, we invaded Iraq, wiped out all their leadership, Replace them with, replace those guys with democracy, and that didn't work out for them. Huh. I mean, if democracy and reason are going to save the world, then why didn't that work? Well, maybe because they're not going to save the world. I, I'm not, you know, I like democracy. I like where we live. I like the United States. It's a better place to live than most places in the world. But if we think that the ballot box can save us or that a tool can save us, right? That's what science is, is a tool. Then we're silly. We're silly. The fulcrum of history is the cross and the resurrection because it changes what it means to be human. It changes what it means to be in charge. Jesus said in Mark that the Gentiles lorded over their people. Even their great ones, they exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so with you. You must be a servant. Jesus has changed the nature of what it means to be human, to be in charge.
Jesus himself says that his kingdom is not from this world, but that it is definitely for this world. So what are its methods? Write it down. Go to John chapter 13. And read about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Those are the methods of the kingdom of God. We are very willing to have Jesus as a kind of social worker. Or to have Jesus as a guy that saves us safely away to heaven. We just say some special words and then we hold on by our fingernails until we die inside our Christian bubble. We're fine with that. But Jesus, don't tell us how to live our lives. That's our business. You're Lord of heaven. But Jesus says, what? I am Lord of heaven and earth. And if we follow Jesus, then we have been called to be places where heaven and earth intersect and overlap. The methods of the kingdom... Do not rely on violence. They rely on self-giving love. When we diminish the cross, when we make the cross just this thing, that we, this car we drive to get to heaven, when we diminish it out to be smaller than what it really is, then we will build empires that are indistinguishable from all of the evil ones that have come before him. We will believe people, powerful people who come forward and promise impossible things. We'll believe whatever they say. Why? Because Jesus is a guy that gets us safely to heaven, but he is not Lord of the world. Western theologians and philosophers, I'm almost finished. I know it's hot. They've taken the one-story universe, all right? So imagine the universe as a one-story ranch, okay? And so heaven and earth overlap and intersect and interlock. And so what happened in the West is people decided that they were done with God, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take God and we're going to create an addition we're going to increase the value of our home. We're going to create an addition and stick God upstairs and lock the door. And God can kind of, we'll give him a little, a little speaker hole that he can yell down at us sometimes and tell us how bad we are. And that's what we've done. But the Christian view of God, the Christian view of reality has always been, or at least should be, has been up until about 150 years ago, that the universe is a one-story ranch and everything intermingles and intersects and overlaps. That's why in quantum physics we're realizing that we've only scratched the surface. As much as we've learned, you ask any, ask any physicist and he'll tell you, we barely know anything as much as we've learned. Religion is not a private matter. Christianity, like, like 
Christianity is about how is the world created. Christianity is about what is the world, what is the world? How do we rule the world? What do we do with our resources? What do we do with our time? Who are we? Who is God? What does he want? These are cosmic questions. You can't just stick them up inside of your second story and slam the door. So my question for you is, where is your faith today? What is Jesus in charge of? What does he get to be the Lord of in your life? Is he in an attic? Is he, uh, did you put God in retirement? Like, you know, you did some nice things for me, but, you know, it's time to put you out to pasture, God. We're done. Right. For some of us, he is in retirement. He gives us some good advice sometimes when we want to hear it. But we're in charge. That's an illusion. In 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, in Romans, Paul comments about how we are slaves to something. You are always a slave to whatever you obey. I would rather be a slave to Christ than be a slave to my own desires. I remember what that life was like. Many of us do. So my question is, who is Lord of your life? Who is Lord of your decision making? What do our empires look like in our world? Do they look like Jesus is in charge? The leaders of that world, they would tell you, no, he's not. So where is our faith? Is it in the next person that comes forward and says, I'm going to fix everything? Trust me. How many times have we heard that before? Every single time. Has never quite worked out. What a shock. Trust me. If I throw enough money and bombs at it, it will get fixed. All right, well, have a good time with that. It hasn't worked before. The gospel is our salvation. Jesus is our Lord. Let's keep our faith focused on that. Let's live our lives as though that's true, because it is. Outside of that, we're living a delusion. Because we think that we order our own steps. Let's remember who our Lord is today. My encouragement to you is to remember that, especially, especially given our time period right now. Remember who your Lord is. Remember what his methods are. Keep faith. Hold on to your hope. Jesus is Lord. He earned it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you that you love us, that you did condescend to come and be with us, to become part of our lives, to to become king. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we go today. 
that you would be with us, that we would be ambassadors for who you are, that you truly would be Lord, not only in our own private, personal morality, but in the way we interact with people, the way that we pray over people, the way we treat people. And Lord, that you would help us in this very strange and confusing time in the world. In your name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. It's good to see you.